mate, come here. What is it, Captain Dagama? Does that look like India to you? W- w- where? Where I'm pointing. I think that's a cloud. Blast! But the thing just said we were getting close. W- which thing? This thing. In 2,000 feet, take a left on the Atlantic Ocean. It's been saying that for days. But if I find the route to India, I, Wolfo Dagama, will be the toast of Poland. You mean Portugal. Which one is shaped like a band-aid? That's the one I mean. Definitely Portugal. But Captain Dagama, you're already famous for discovering Trinidad. No, that was my brothers, Vasco, Chico, and Harpo Dagama. I need this for me. Come on, you stupid thing. Find India. In 2.5 miles, take a left on the Hudson River. The Hudson River? That doesn't sound like India. In 500 feet, your destination, Tandori Palace, will be on the right. No, that's an Indian restaurant, you stupid thing! On the other hand, we're running low on provisions, and I could totally go for some chicken tikka masala. Okay, but we're getting takeout because we have to get right back out on the Atlantic Ocean because we're already going to be late getting to India. I would like some lamb korma and some of that nice puffy bread. No, 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 no. You're not eating takeout because you're just a navigation device, and it's your fault we're lost. Someday, mark my words, someday we're going to have something better than this. We're going to use the stars and the Earth's magnetism, and we'll make marks on paper, and it'll be called maps. And then, no more getting lost. It sounds too complicated. What if the maps break? It won't be complicated. It'll be so much better. In fact, here's a radio show about the tension between beautiful maps and high-tech navigation. What's a radio show? It's a... never mind. And now the guy who kept asking Magellan to stop and ask for directions, Colin McEnroe. That's what I said. I would say just pull over and ask those people there where we are, What you know, just for directions. He didn't want to do it. It was kind of a guy thing, I think. He was very sensitive about that. He said, no, I... And what he would say is, I think I'm actually really close to where I want to be. It's just... Uh, you know, I don't really need to ask for directions. Uh, so that's a lifelong problem for a lot of people. We are going to talk today about maps and then things that aren't maps. Uh, as uh, the uh, introduction suggested, the the modern tension between navigational devices, high-tech na- navigational devices that purport anyway to solve all of the problems of figuring out where you are and where you're going. Uh, and then these other things that for hundreds, nay, thousands of years we made and used as a way of just guiding ourselves around, knowing where we were and what the actual shape and configuration of the world is. Um, In a little while, uh, I will introduce to you uh, Hiawatha Bray, who's a journalist for the Boston Globe and the author of You Are Here, From the Compass to the GPS, The History and Future of How We Find Ourselves. But uh, right now, uh, you're going to talk to Robert Don. I'm going to talk to Robert Don. Uh, He's a professional land surveyor and partner with me in Gooden in uh, Manchester, and he is the past president and current legislative liaison of the Connecticut Association of Land Surveyors. He makes maps. Maps are not obsolete. Also with us uh, by phone is Michael Blanding. He's a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis, uh, the author of The Coke Machine, The Dirty Truth Behind the World's Favorite Soft Drink, but that's not really pertinent to what we're talking about. Uh, and he will uh, have out in just uh, a few weeks, the, which you can now, you can pre-order it now. Go to your independent bookseller and pre-order The Map Thief, which is out in June uh, and uh, by Michael Blanding. So, Michael Blanding, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, we are going to talk today about the, the, this subtle tension and when Hiawatha, not so subtle tension, really, when Hiawatha Bray joins us, uh, we'll talk very specifically about the, the technological changes that, that have, in fact, altered our way of 
finding our, our way around or understanding where we are. Uh, but for thousands of years, it's been maps. Um, I don't know. Is it? And we should say that uh, Michael Blending's book is about this fabulous Connecticut-based case, which Robert Don followed with keen interest and knows quite a, quite a bit about. And we will get to that, a fabulous Connecticut-based case of this uh, guy who was stealing ancient maps. I mean, maps dating back to the 1520s, so that's ancient enough. Uh, but before we go there, let's talk about maps. And Michael Blending, in your book, you intersperse the modern story of E. Forbes Smiley, your so-called map thief, with the story of maps dating back to Eratosthenes and Ptolemy, some of these kind of, you know, these famous early map makers. Um, is it fair to say we don't need maps anymore? Um, well, thanks, Colin. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really glad to be here to talk about maps. It's uh, one of my favorite subjects and has been for three years working on this book. And um, I, don't, I don't know if we need maps anymore, but we certainly still love maps. I mean, it r- really surprised me. You know, I, I thought that this was an obsession that uh, I had had alone for, for most of my life. But working on this book and talking to folks at the proverbial cocktail party, I cannot tell you how many people, when they heard the subject of the book, just, uh, you know, just gushed and said, you know, oh, I love maps, and you know, talked about maps and books uh, when they were were growing up, or talked about using maps on on trips, and you know, there's there's so many secret uh, secret uh, map, uh, you know, paper map lovers out there that uh, the, the map is alive and well in our imaginations. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it seems like this kind of fuddy-duddy thing, you know, and, and if you're using one in the vicinity of somebody who's 23 years older or younger, older or younger, they may look at you like, what is this and what are you doing? On the other hand, if you really think about it, and, and I, I glean from your book that you either at one point lived in Paris or frequently visit Paris, I don't know, the first thing I do when I get to Paris is to take out my Plan de Paris, which I have in my pocket, which has all the little arrondissement maps in it, uh, and I, I don't. I, in order to orient yourself in a new place, whether it's Paris or Kyoto, you, I mean, using a little thing on your phone is not really going to do it. You really kind of have to look at a map still. I don't think they're obsolete yet. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that it's a very different sensation to look at a GPS and see that arrow in the middle that's going to point wherever you go and show you that little you know, screen-sized uh, version of the world that uh, just tells you your immediate surroundings. And, and that's fine it's a, if it's a place that you already know and, and are relatively familiar with. But if you are on untrodden territory and trying to really get your bearings and understand how things relate to each other, I, I think that most of us still today, we, we open up the guidebook or we, we purchase the map uh, at the airport and uh, spread it out, like, like you say, when you arrive at a strange city. And, and you really want to know how things relate to each other and not just how they relate to you and that little arrow in the middle. Um, by the way, as we go along here, if you have comments or questions or you simply want to tell the story of your own relationship with maps, we're live here in the afternoon. Give us a call, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, or you may tweet us, as somebody already has, at uh, WNPR Colin. Um, so, Robert Don, I, I, I want to go over to you for a second. I, we're going to come back to Michael and talk a little bit about the history of maps and, and map makers and kind of what they've meant at various times over history. But let's just stay with this idea for a moment. I feel as though there is a kind of map literacy crisis that uh, I, I don't know how much uh, you run into this, how much time you spend talking to younger people who aren't in your field, but do you, do you feel as though maybe map reading skills, map understanding skills are imperiled right now? First, I'd, I'd like to interject that I, I find that the technology has not made the map obsolete. It's, Mm. in fact, given us 
uh, a, a more dynamic tool to use in our map making and if you become savvy in the process in in our reading of maps as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't I don't look at this as the end of the map only as as a, as a step in the evolution of the map. But I feel as though we could be heading to sort of towards an idiocracy where people think they don't know how to read maps, so they and don't need to know how to read maps, so they don't. I, I do I do see some of that. Mm. Um, you know, I myself I I develop all of my own surveys are done digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean when they're that they're done digitally? They they're done on a computer. Yeah, but they, you have to go out in the field and point oh, them. Point oh, things no, absolutely. Things. You still absolutely. have to do everything that a map maker has ever had to do, right? Absolutely, and and I would make a, a distinction between. Uh, uh, what we've referred to as navigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to navigation is how do you get to here. Mm-hmm. Surveying and mapping is the de- definition, the the defining and locating and positioning of where here is. Yeah, what is here? Um, and so. Um, uh, you know, Michael Blanding, the history of maps, though, is the history of those two things, right? On the one hand, the you know, historically, whether we're going back um, a thousand years or 500 years or 1500 years, map makers have kind of needed to know both things. What What is the layout of where they are or the world itself? You know, how, how is everything kind of organized? And then assuming one wanted to get from here to there, uh, how to do it? Yeah, it's it's really funny if you go back, uh, you know, a thousand years or more to the Middle Ages. I mean, the maps that they were creating then um, are practically useless. I mean, they're these um, depictions of the world that are—it's more of a, a cosmological guide to the world than it is an actual uh, map that you could use to get anywhere. And and you know, they—it's not that they didn't know how to make those kind of maps; they just weren't interested in it. They they wanted to produce, they wanted to tell a story about. Uh, about religion and about God and about uh, you know how the world was was organized and it really wasn't until around uh, the 13 1400s that um, uh, particularly on the Mediterranean that there was one group of people who really did need didn't know how to get from point A to point B and those, those were uh, sea captains and so the the first uh, uh, you know shall we say modern maps uh, in you know started appearing around the time of the Renaissance and they were nautical charts that would uh, get from uh, Point A to point B on on the Mediterranean, and they had almost no detail whatsoever of the of the actual land. It was all about uh, compass bearings and and uh, 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 wind roses and and things like that that would help uh, ship captains navigate. So, you know, different maps are produced for different purposes, and it's really interesting to see the the politics of that kind of develop over the centuries. And when we talk about politics, so there's sort of an economics and a politics to it, right? Too, if if in an era of exploration, colonization, imperialism, whatever terms we're going to use for that, the person with the really good maps holds a substantial advantage. Absolutely. I mean, that that was really the um, you know you uh, you had uh, Vasco da Gama in your intro, which I really enjoyed, and and uh, you know the whole story of the uh, uh, progression from the Portuguese Empire to the Dutch Empire, and around the 1500s, really was based on on superior map making. The Dutch had uh, the, the better engravers, and, and uh, they had uh, the better pilots, and, and they had this uh, secret atlas to the uh, to the the east, uh, the, the Pacific, and, and the Spice Isles, and uh, they were able to shave off, you know, a few days uh, here and there in order to get to uh, the good stuff faster, and, and ended up uh, uh, supplanting the, the Portuguese as the dominant power in the world at that time. 
so yeah, it really does matter. Maps really do matter, and they've played uh, an essential role in uh, in history and in power and politics uh, throughout the ages. And so, and Robert Don, you were telling me before we uh, went on the air that even as a, a modern map maker and surveyor now, uh, with access to the latest digital equipment, you you still have a kind of love of these old maps. Absolutely, and and I, in fact, I I was at Columbia University over the weekend, and. Uh, I didn't find my way around on campus using my phone. I <laughs> printed out a map of the campus and had it in my coat pocket. So, I, I, you know, I, I still have the love of holding the piece of paper in my hands as well. But these these old maps are things of beauty, too. They are they, – they put us back in touch with, with a different time. And, and they are absolutely works of art. Um, I have just very simple – uh, old maps in my office that I've picked up over the years, uh, you know, plots, a plot of land down in Derby, Connecticut, and uh, various things. And just looking at how they were, you know, the hand-drawn map was drawn and presented is 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 absolutely a work of art. And and Michael Blanding, it isn't just the drawing, uh, the figurative drawing on the maps. It's the handwriting and stuff like that too, right? Oh, it's everything. It's the calligraphy. It's the pictures. Oftentimes, they were really elaborate uh, pictures of animals or or of indigenous peoples that were drawn on the maps. And you know that that period that I was talking about during the Dutch kind of golden age of of map making actually corresponded with the the Dutch golden age of painting as well. And you can see some of these. Uh, some of these paintings by the Dutch masters, by Vermeer, uh, for example, would actually include maps in their in their paintings in the background as a way to decorate their their paintings. So they were very very much thought of uh, as as a work of art, uh, just as much as they were this this navigational tool to kind of achieve an edge uh, business. The um, and, and as a result, I mean, they really do have a lot of value. Reading your book, The Map Thief. Available in June. Um, one becomes aware of the fact that these things are. I just got through reading the Goldfinch too, which is of course about this stolen, mm-hmm. it's fictional work about this uh, stolen work of Dutch art, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously, it's worth like a lot of money. But these maps, the maps that you're talking about in the Map Thief, these are often worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Yeah, it was incredible to me to to learn this that uh, you know maps can go for tens of, of thousands of dollars, and as you say, even hundreds of thousands of dollars if they're old enough or rare enough or beautiful enough, and um, you know, it was really during the 1990s that they took off. There was a real kind of um, fad to use old maps as decoration. And, and so, uh, you know, folks who were, were rich enough to spend a lot of money decorating their house but not quite rich enough to afford a, a uh, you know, Cezanne uh, would go out and, and buy these rare maps. And, and uh, at auctions, the prices just kept going up and up and up. Uh, and ironically, you know, it's occurred, or maybe not so ironically, it's occurred at a time when, uh, you know, we've, we've shifted away from, from the paper map that they've become more and more valuable as, as works of art and as, as uh, decorations, um, and people are willing to pay a whole lot of money for them. You know, uh, Robert Don, today when a surveyor makes a map, I, I mean, notwithstanding the digital equipment uh, on your computer that you'll eventually use, is it still basically the same thing as it was in, you know, 1620 or 1630 when some Dutch ship, uh, you know, came up the Connecticut River and, and, and tried to map out the environs? Uh, when, when, I, when I started surveying in the, in the 1970s, it was largely the same process that, w- that was used by the, the Romans. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used a device called a groma uh, to turn angles, to measure angles, and, and they'd measure angles and distances. And, you know, over time, 
the technology of the device we use to measure angles became more accurate, but the process was still the, the same process. It was a turning of angles and a measuring of distances. Uh, in the last 25 to 30 years, that process has begun to evolve at, at what I consider a very rapid rate. Um, and, and we're using much more electronic devices. We're using uh, aerial images, um, which has also led to the uh, proliferation of, of measurements made with, with GPS equipment. Um, we're doing what they call laser scanning, creating 3D images mm-hmm. with laser scanning. So that the, the process has really begun, begun to, uh, to change. The um, you know one of the aspects to this uh, too, Robert Don, is that um, you know we said that that um, you know there's sort of two different things. You know, what's the place you're talking about, and then how do you get from that place to another place? But as to the whole question of what's the place you're talking about, and, and Michael will have some examples of this too. But um, the whole issue of surveying and then making maps often determines even boundaries and shape and size uh, of any given place. For example, Connecticut has this notch uh, in the top of it. And there are like 18 different stories about why there's this weird asymmetrical notch uh, in the, uh, on the northern border of Connecticut. But I assume it, whatever the correct story is, it has something to do with your line of work. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, the, the so-called Granby notch uh, is the final remnant of what was approximately an eight-mile uh, surveying error. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was reluctant to use that terminology, but um, all of the Connecticut boundaries, the New York boundary, the Massachusetts boundary, and the Rhode Island boundary have all had disputes over time. Uh, the, the New York one, all, all of them starting in the, the colonial periods in the 1600s and um, the New York boundary compounded by the fact that the two colonies that adjoined one another, one was an English colony and one was a Dutch colony. So you not only had uh, the imprecise science of the conveyancing of the grants, you also had two different authorities conveying the grants. So it led to a great deal of dispute and uh, disagreement uh, that over time took some settling to, to figure out. And uh, the, the Rhode Island border in particular has just recently <laughs> reached a final resolution. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Which I assume means that, well, the Rhode Island border with Connecticut? Yes. Oh, yes. so uh, did we get more or less? Did we get anything back from them? Uh, it, we, Does we it like, work that way? <laughs> we, we like to say that you, you can't get more or less because you can't get more than you didn't. You can't get what you didn't have in the first place. All right. So, yeah, it was never really there. Yeah. So, Michael Blanding, this, you know, this is the story in some ways. Or, or I, I'll put it another way. Think of any disputed uh, territory, whether it's Crimea or Alsace-Lorraine or whatever. There's probably the story of a map in there somewhere or probably more than one map because the whole question, really, when you think about it, a lot of these sort of, you know, real estate questions that turn into w- battles uh, are battles about whose map is right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maps have been used as a form of propaganda for for centuries and uh, a way to to lay claim to territory, whether it's what you call a certain area. You know, the the maps of the New Netherlands were uh, quickly changed to maps of New York um, at at a certain point in in history overnight. 
And um, if you look at, uh, for example, the uh, Ohio Valley um, at a time that the uh, French and the English were battling it out over uh, control of the Ohio Valley, uh, you know, there was about 50 years there where the English would produce a map that had the boundaries drawn in one place, and the French would draw a map that had the boundaries uh, in the other place. And eventually that kind of uh, cartographic uh, war, if, if you will, kind of broke out into an actual war uh, with the French and the Indian, and the Indian War, which... Uh, which um, preceded the American Revolution. So, you know, the, the stakes sometimes in, in where you put the boundary line and, and who's drawing the boundary line can be pretty huge. Well, one gets the feeling reading your book, too, that sometimes in something like the French and Indian War, there would also be map makers who were like war correspondents, kind of, that, that the war was raging across the face of, uh, of places that really weren't cartographically settled, that weren't all mapped out. So there were map makers just kind of following the war and kind of figuring out where things were for future reference or for the, you know, for the value or the, the, the advantage of, of somebody who wanted to attack something. Yeah, absolutely. You could get a real strategic adv- advantage by knowing where the course of a certain river went in the Ohio Valley, so to speak. And then at the same time, these map makers were also going along and uh, making maps of the battles that took place and sending them to newspapers back home so that uh, the um, the people you know across the ocean could follow along and figure out who was winning and and you know where uh, something like uh, you know Fort Duquesne, where that was actually located. And, uh, you know, in the same way that now we're looking at maps of uh, Crimea or Syria or places like that in the newspapers and trying to figure out what's going on in that part of the world. So maps can be a real way of uh, understanding what's happening a long distance away. Yeah, Robert, what were you going to say? Yeah. We find in, in our profession that this same dynamic manifests itself, not just from the perspective of international borders, but from the perspective of state, as we've discussed, state borders municipal borders, and then right down to the the borders between Colin's house and my house. Um, And and it's the same dynamic. It's the same. It's it's the same conversation, just over a different uh, a a different demarcation. Yeah. In fact, I I spoke with a a map collector in the course of writing my book, who was a uh, a peanut farmer in Alabama, and he said that that's the way that he first got into maps, is he really liked seeing how the French and the English drew their boundaries in different places, because it reminded him of how his neighbors uh, and, you know, neighboring farmers were drawing their boundaries in different places to see who could get the best crop land. So, uh, so yeah, it happens on all, all sorts of scales. And, all, right, all right. Yeah, go ahead. And interestingly enough, that, that peanut farmer in Alabama is probably currently driving his tractor that has GPS control on it when he's plowing his fields and uh and and planting his seeds and whatever whatever they do in peanut farming i I must confess i'm not an expert on on peanut farming but but robert to that point and by the way kathleen and john i'm going to get to your calls right away and then we're going to go to a break there's just so much stuff i want to cover here where i'm juggling around a little bit uh but don't hang up kathleen and john and i'm going to read some tweets too but to that point um robert don when the peanut farmer is in his truck and he's got his GPS going and the GPS is telling him X, Y, Z, I assume the GPS ultimately, I mean, this is an interface that involves a satellite and a signal and stuff like that. But there's a map somewhere, right? There's a map that ultimately is the reference point for whatever the GPS is telling uh, uh, telling the farmer. And I assume it's a map that's made the way you make maps. There's at least underlying survey data that uh, that uh, provides the GPS system with the positioning information that then allows the tractor to be guided by the GPS equipment. 
All right. Let me grab a couple calls here. Oh, we'll start with Kathleen in Milford. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. Uh, I guess I have a happy story about, about maps. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents used to drive these road rallies where over the weekends you'd drive all over the countryside going by landmarks and doing this all for obviously you know, the shortest time possible. And my father's technology at the time was his clipboard with a stopwatch, his slide rules, because his little logo, and the Hagstrom maps, which were like Bibles, at least in, you know, in this part of New England. Years and years later, I take a job, and it's around mapping Wi-Fi networks to have a non-GPS you know, map system for phones that eventually was used by Apple to do their first phones. And what did I use? So this goes almost exactly to the point that Robert was just making, that no matter how high tech you get, somewhere at the bottom uh, of that story are still, you know, pretty conventional uh, maps that ha- have to be there for the reference points. Uh, all right. Here's uh, here's John in West Hartford. Hi, John. Hey, Colin. I just had a question for you and your guests. Um, doesn't the reliance of uh, most, I guess, contemporaries of ourselves on the GPS, remove the element of serendipitous discovery, like when you're looking at a map, and you want to get from one place to another, and you say, hey, um, that looks like an interesting location to, to try and check out uh, that I wasn't even planning on going to until I saw the map. Well, there's a, I mean, first of all, and this Hiawatha break, and certainly uh, chime in on that when we, we, we add him in the next part of the conversation, uh, but, but there's so many ways in which the using GPS changes the whole equation, changes the whole. I mean, actually, Michael Blanding, just to get back back to the original example that I offered up, you know, the plan to Paris. Well, yeah, I mean, you can sort of figure out all kinds of you. You only know how to ask the GPS one question at a time. Uh, and you have to know the question that you're going to ask. Whereas looking at a map, you can think of a lot of other questions and a lot of other possible answers. I was going to say it also depends on how good your GPS is, because I've had the opposite experience of following a GPS sort of blindly and not paying attention to where I was going and having a conversation with my uh, my passenger and then looking up and all of a sudden realizing that I was, you know, miles away from where I was supposed to be because I'd plugged the wrong coordinates in or, or the, the GPS had, had taken me on a uh, circuitous route from, from point A to point B by way of point C. So... Um, so sometimes the maps uh, can be much more efficient than, than the GPS, depending on what you're using. Well, you know, yeah, and everybody's had the experience. I would imagine most people have had the experience. I had it recently of, you know, traveling a, a familiar route uh, and uh, to from, from Hartford to New York City, running into incredible traffic at some point, getting off uh, in the Pelhams. I don't know anything about the Pelhams. I don't know my way around the Pelhams. And GPS at that point becomes less and less useful. And your ability mm-hmm. to pull up the actual map on your phone, or God forbid you should have an actual map uh, in your in your car, and begin to reroute yourself and understand what your options really are. I mean, you really don't want to depend on that little voice anymore. You really want to be able to kind of look at everything. Hey, let me read a few tweets here. Then we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're not going to have enough time for everything we want to talk about. I can already tell. Suburban Recluse tweets, maps are a unique and perfect intersection of art, science, and adventure. We couldn't say that better. Jennifer tweets, great show. I make illustrated maps, mostly for children's books. Maps tell stories. Suburban recluse. This is apparently a good topic for him or her. My young boys love their uh, gadgets, but also love the world. The U.S. and Cape Cod maps we have up in the playroom. That says a lot. All right. We've got other tweets coming in, other calls as well. Our number, 860-275-7266. In our final segment, we are going to tell you the story of the map thief himself. It's an amazing story. In the next segment, we're going to go a little bit 
bit more into the technology. Hiawatha Bray will join us. Uh, Robert Don also is going to talk a little bit uh, about this technology that has changed, we think, maybe everything. I don't know where to start, so draw me a map that leads me back to you. I don't know where to go, please tell me what to do. Help me find the road you're on, I just need directions home. Our show today is about maps and navigation, uh, about how you know where you are, how to get where you're going, and what actually the place is where you think you are. Uh, with us in studio, Robert Don. He's a professional land surveyor and therefore a maker of maps. Michael Blanding is with us on the phone. Uh, his uh, book coming out in June, or pre-order it now, The Map Thief, uh, which is the gripping story of an esteemed rare map dealer who made millions stealing priceless maps. Uh, joining us now also... Uh, is Hiawatha Bray. Hiawatha Bray uh, is a writer for the Boston Globe and the author of You Are Here, um, which is the uh, From the Compass to the GPS, the History and Future of How We Find Ourselves. Hiawatha Bray, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of ancient maps and, and just sort of the, the role that, that maps play in, in our lives. Your book focuses a lot more on, on the technology that either worked in coordination in conjunction with maps or even begins to, to drive out and supplant maps in certain circumstances. Although, and as also we. Also, in the case of technology that is used to make maps, and that even technology that is making us map makers. Because today, if you use, for example, a modern smartphone, there's a good chance that every time you go out on the street, you're helping to add to the map of the world. We're all map makers these days. Yeah, and you know, near in some of the final chapters of, of You Are Here, this is something you really deal with a lot. Let me just come to that in a second. Mm -hmm. But let's, um, before we start with that, one of the things that, one of the patterns that emerges uh, in your book is, I mean, these days, corporations, as you just suggested, are very interested in making certain kinds of maps and using us as, as map making tools. But for a long time, it seems as though maybe the driving force in, in the, the, the technology that you talk about are various militaries, right? You want your submarine not to get lost. You want your Minuteman missile to hit the target it sits at, it, you're shooting at. So you really want this great technology. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's not new. I mean, a huge reason for mapping all along has been military and, and, and its nature. I mean, throughout much of history, uh, countries or nations or tribes kept accurate maps as secrets. They were considered military secrets that you had to very, very closely guard. I mean, the old Soviet Union, you couldn't get accurate maps if you were a Russian and you lived in the old Soviet Union. You couldn't just go out and buy a map. A lot of that stuff you, you weren't allowed to know. Maps have often been treated as secrets because of their military value. And a lot of the technology that we now think of as vital to our accurate view of the world was invented for military purposes. Everything from the, the satellite photos that we have now that have allowed us to map the world so accurately starts out as spying technology for spying on the Russians. Uh, GPS uh, starts out, of course, as a way of aiming targets at, uh, aiming missiles at military targets. Inertial navigation, which we use for long-range navigation of, like, aircraft across oceans, was invented as a way so that you could navigate a submarine without having to surface, so you could sneak up on a country and hit them with missiles. All that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, the, the thing that you just mentioned there is on the long, long list of 
things I have never thought about before in my life. So um, obviously submarines, I mean, the you know, most nautical navigation, conventional historic nautical navigation uses the sky. You know, you look yeah. up, uh, you're deep, deep under the water sailing up towards the, the North Pole. You're not going to look up at the sky. I never really thought about that before. So basically the, the, the submarine navigational technology, it almost begins with the pendulum. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it, the weird thing, and I didn't know this until I started working on this, people had started to think about how you could do this on a submarine way back at the turn of the 19th century. There was some German guy who was already planning a voyage to the North Pole. You know, people forget that getting to the North Pole was considered this incredibly difficult challenge. Nobody could figure out how to get there and live. And one idea was, let's take a submarine and do it. And even in like 19, I think it was 1905 or something, people thought they could build a submarine to do it. The only problem was they had no idea how to steer. They had no idea how to steer under the ice. And it's not till the 1950s that we get a technology that solves that problem. Now we can steer under the ice, and that's inertial navigation. And it was for military purposes, because the North, we hear more and more about this as the ice cap melts. Everybody's saying that the Arctic Circle is going to be a major area for military competition, and people are going down there and trying to figure out how to navigate under the ice pack. And we figured it out really starting in the 1950s with inertial navigation. You know, is it the case, and I'm going to have Robert Don chime in about this in just a second, but I'll start with you, Hiawatha Bray. Is it there, therefore the case that as the technology gets more sophisticated, all the kinds of technology that you chronicle in your book, that um, that misunderstandings get cleared up? In other words, you know, one of the, I mean, not to keep harping on the North Pole, and you, you may have a much better example anyway, but when there were North Pole explorers prior to the development of all this technology, there were subsequent questions about whether said explorer actually did find the North Pole or whether he missed it because, in fact, you know, the maps aren't that great, the navigation's not that great. So, That's absolutely right. You're absolutely right. To this day, you're like, people talk about um, uh, uh, Perry uh, getting to the North Pole. They're not absolutely sure, and there are historians who are still arguing about whether he made it. Mm-hmm. So, so these things do get cleared up, that we, we, we know things now. I mean, not only do we know how to, to shoot missiles at things and, and make submarines uh, uh, go where they're supposed to underwater. I mean, do we actually know better where everything is? Oh, well, absolutely. And, and, and the, the example that I do give in the book is an example of the spy satellite, which now, of course, has made possible things like Google Maps. The Russians were horrified at the realization that we were launching these satellites that could spy on them. But little by little, both sides in the Cold War came to realize that spy satellites were a blessing because they made it possible to know that each side knew that the other side, at least in a major way, was not planning any kind of an attack. You could, they could hide little things. They could hide the occasional secret base here or there. But any attempt to launch some kind of a major attack would have been visible from these spy satellites. And the fact that we couldn't see that told each side knew, because they could look down on the other side, hey, we don't have to worry about them attacking us, uh, coming over the North Pole and launching some kind of a bomber attack or something. They don't have the bombers. They don't have this technology, and we know it because we can see it. And it stabilized the Cold War. It made it safer. It reduced the risk of war that we were able to spy on each other. Robert Don, I have a uh, land surveyor right here in the studio with me. So, Robert Don, you know, listening to all of this and reading Hiawatha Bray's book, you'd think, one would think, well, then, now, case closed. We can figure out anything. There isn't any murkiness. Although, just a few minutes ago, you were saying that we're, we only worked out a final disposition of the Rhode Island-Connecticut border a few years ago. So, so how much does the technology that he's talking about, modern navigational and mapping technology, sort of settle everything and make your job uh, a, a question of black and white as opposed to gray? It, it, it gives us a, a 
much more precise technical tool to actually locate uh, a boundary that we know where it is. And, and to that regard, yes, it does solve some longstanding issues. It also identifies issues that we didn't know we had. <laughs> and it's a marvelous tool for creating new disputes with. Right. You can have a fight about something you didn't even know was worth fighting about. Exactly. Until this thing existed. So Hiawatha Bray, I'm sure you get asked this all the, uh, all the time. If we've got spy satellites, if we've got all this incredibly high-tech mapping technology, why can't we find a Malaysian airliner? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know the timing for this was perfect for my book. Um, but it's a terrible tragedy, and I don't want to make light of it. And I don't know if you saw the news yesterday out of Inmarsat. Did you hear about this? No, uh, I don't think I did. Right. Inmarsat is the, the British company that makes these satellites that are, well, they don't make them, but they control the satellite network that is used for satellite communications. And as you surely know, these long-range planes, many of them have these satellite pingers, and that's how they claim to have figured out where this plane was. But only a few airlines use a service that Inmarsat offers where the plane automatically tells the satellite network where it is on a regular basis, where it is, how fast it's going, and what direction it's moving. You can buy that service, but many airlines didn't subscribe to it. Yesterday, Inmarsat announced free of charge from now on. Hmm. Any airline that has the planes built, any plane that has the system built in can use that feature free of charge, and it will automatically track where the plane is, no matter what. The technology existed. It's that lots of airlines simply didn't use it. Because planes are so reliable. They don't just disappear. They didn't think they needed to use it. I think that's over now. This is going to become a standard issue, and we will never again have a situation in which an airplane just disappears. It's not going to happen. Well, the other thing that disappears sometimes are people. Uh, yeah. and, and so um, in, I think, your, your last chapter in the book, you talk about uh, a cocaine dealer uh, yeah. who would probably have liked to disappear or like to his whereabouts anyway to be a lot less obvious and his movements a lot less detectable. But using basically the same technology that allows my phone to tell me that, you know, when I look at Yelp or something like that, that there's, you know, a Portuguese restaurant three blocks away or something, they, they basically, uh, the, the law enforcement authorities, were able to figure out a lot of things about where this guy was. Oh, absolutely. But the U.S. Supreme Court, in a, in a really important case, basically said, you can't do that. Because what, the, what the, uh, the police did was they stuck a GPS tracker on his car. Mm -hmm. They got a warrant to do it, but the warrant expired by the time they actually started tracking the guy. And uh, he successfully argued before the Supreme Court, you cannot track my location over an extended period without a warrant. But the funny thing is, several justices on the court wanted to go even farther. They wanted to, because the court simply ruled that the law was broken because they put the GPS tracker on his car, and that meant they came into contact with his property. Other justices wanted to go farther. They said, nowadays your phone could tell where you are. You don't have to put a tracker on anybody. They could just find out from the phone company. And they said we should go further and require a warrant even to do that. And there are some states now that are passing legislation that say you cannot even find out from somebody's phone records where they are unless you first get a warrant. And this case is what really helped kick all that off, and I think that's a good sign. 
Yeah. Although we were having a conversation in my house this morning about Nigeria and if they do the the, tr- the prisoner for hostage swap, they'd be crazy not to try to uh, put some kind of GPS device secretly uh, on the prisoners and and you know be able to figure out where they're going. So watch watch for that one. They may. Yeah, I don't know how they do it exactly. I mean, GPS devices are relatively bulky. It's not like in the movies where you can slip something under your skin or something. No, too bad. All right. So hi, the break. So great to talk to you. The book is uh, You Are Here from the Compass to the GPS, the history and future of how we find ourselves. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go back to Michael Blanding uh, and to Robert Don, who followed this case, uh, the story of this incredible Connecticut-based map thief. Here's a tip. Just because people say so-and-so has the map of Ireland on his face, that doesn't mean you can use his face to find Donegal. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Betsy and Greg Hill appeared in the introduction, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Zeppo da Gama. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the Faith Middleton Show staff's alternative map of Candyland, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to children's literature. And now, back to Colin. All right. In the studio with me is Robert Don. He's a professional land surveyor. On the line with me is Michael Blanding. He's the author of The Map Thief, the gripping story of an esteemed rare map dealer who made millions stealing priceless maps. You are going to want this book, but you can't want it too soon because it won't be available until June. You can pre-order it now. So, Michael Blanding, um, this this is a Connecticut-based story. This is a story that begins uh, or that you choose to begin uh, in the Beinecke Rare Book Library of Yale University. Uh, and it begins, uh, it, it's about this guy who was an incredibly successful uh, map stealer, although he makes like the worst possible thief's error at the Yale Beinecke Library, which is to drop an exacto knife on the floor. Yeah. The story begins and ends in, in Connecticut at at uh, the at Yale University, which was, um, according to him at least, the place where he first started stealing maps from libraries, and uh, also the place where eventually he was caught when he made that fatal error. Uh, he had an exacto knife wrapped in a uh, tissue in his back pocket. Uh, and pulled it out to blow his nose, and uh, the knife fell on the floor, and uh, a eagle-eyed librarian found it and turned it in, and that sort of began the unraveling of the case. And if you've ever worked at the Beinecke Library, I mean, you know, they, they don't want you to have anything, basically. I mean, it's amazing that they let you wear clothes. Well, uh, part and, of that is because of this case, frankly. Uh, you know, the security there has always been good, but uh, after this case, they... Uh, Ended up uh, really souping it up, and I was able to go in the back room and see the uh, the camera feeds they have there, and they could practically read over your shoulder if they wanted and, and zoom in with some of these cameras. So yeah, it's pretty high tech. So it turns on 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 this day. I mean, he's sort of you know he's really good at this. On the other hand, he seems kind of inept when he gets caught. He's got you know he's got one of the maps is like folded up in the pocket of his blazer. Uh, he's got a briefcase with him that has some maps that he seems to have taken from Yale, and also some maps that don't come from Yale but probably don't belong to him either. Um, the um, how about Valuable were these maps. I mean, the maps that he was caught having that day by a combination a combination of Beinecke security and Yale police. How like one of them was like this John Smith map, which was pretty pretty important, right? 
Yeah, the, the most expensive map that he ended up stealing was about $185,000, which is a, a map of Boston, which there was uh, very few of left in the world. But they, they ranged anywhere from $1,000 to $100,000 to almost $200,000. So, yeah, this was big bucks. And um, he is, this, as you say, he's this really fascinating character that I just um, got uh, you know really intrigued by in the writing of the book. That on the one hand, he was uh, incredibly professional and knowledgeable and very charismatic and, and sort of larger than life. And on the other side, uh, he was an uh, incredibly inept business person, um, you know, had this, uh, in some ways, this, this kind of naivete and, and uh, was very ill-equipped. Uh, ill-equipped to compete in this kind of high-stakes world of map dealers and map collectors and ended up uh, turning to crime mostly out of desperation uh, when he just couldn't uh, make ends meet anymore. Um, by the way, the book really is, a, I've sort of been looking for something to read uh, since I read The Goldfinch, and this is kind of a nice companion because The Goldfinch is also so much about not just this stolen work of art, but all kinds of um, frauds and forgeries of, of antiquities and stuff like that. So, And R- Robert Don, as a professional surveyor, um, you, were, you were watching this case unfold, right? Well, it, it's, as a maker of modern maps anyway, it's, it's intriguing to, to look at old maps and when I saw this in the newspaper, of course, it caught my eye. And uh, I, in our professional societies, we we make considerable money uh, at our scholarship auctions selling reproductions of old maps. Mm. So you know, I I always figured that there was value in the old maps, but but maybe uh, not one hundred eighty-five thousand uh, dollars. No. Um, so we haven't said this guy's name yet. I think E. Forbes Smiley the Third. I mean, even his name is sort of great for this case. Uh, Michael Blanding. One of the really interesting things about this is that when they eventually sort of catch up with uh, E. Forbes Smiley, and then uh, he's persuaded by his lawyer that uh, the smartest thing for him to do is to cooperate in return for what he hopes a, a lighter sentence. There then comes kind of this odd thing where there's this whole trove of maps that have been stolen from all kinds of places, but it just there's not just this real black and white set of decisions about who which map belongs to who, right? Yeah, that's what, what's fascinating about it. It's not like uh, works of art where you have kind of one painting that's, that's hanging in a museum and everybody knows where it is and everybody knows when it's missing. You know, these maps, there may have been a thousand copies printed of them 400 years ago and maybe a dozen or two dozen survive today and and they're in different books and different libraries and different state of repair and uh, so it really became a treasure hunt that even after Smiley started cooperating with the authorities they had to try and and track down all of these maps and where they went and and uh, which one belonged to which library and there are a number of the libraries that believe that there are many more maps that uh, that are missing and, and that were stolen that, that still haven't been returned. So it really did become this uh, this kind of treasure hunt. Well, why couldn't E. Forbes Smiley just say, well, no, I took that math, map, map from the Boston Public Library? Well, that's a good question and one that uh, that I asked him. And, uh, you know, he he claims that he never kept any records <laughs> and that uh, he, you know, his memory uh, failed him in uh, uh, trying to accurately place these. And, and to some degree, I, I believe him. I mean, uh, if you look at his... Uh, his history, like I said, he he was a terrible business person, and uh, uh, it doesn't surprise me to know that uh, his records were in disarray. But 
there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that uh, makes some of that hard to swallow when you see the same map missing from three different libraries and only one copy that's that's turned up. You've got to wonder where those other two copies are. Right. And, and we should say one of the startling things at the end of the book, not to spoil anything, but I mean, there's like still a bunch of maps that the FBI has that they don't know whose they are. They're these ancient, important uh, maps. But. Yeah, that happened a month before uh, I was uh, about to submit the book to my publisher. All of a sudden there was a press release from the FBI that they'd been sitting on this uh, this trove of maps for uh, for almost eight years that they had recovered in the case and never mentioned to anyone. So <laughs> the, the surprises just, uh, just keep on coming. All right, Michael uh, Blaney, I need a short answer to this question because we're almost out of time. You know, in terms of this sort of terrible amount of uncertainty, is this an E. Forbes smiley problem or is there something about the world of map collectors and, and, and the world that he inhabited, the trading of maps, the private collections and stuff like that? Is there kind of a shadowy quality to all this? Well, I think it's both, honestly. I mean, there's definitely this air of secrecy that pervades the the map profession where you are dealing with a finite number of extremely rare and coveted objects. There's a lot of competition for these things, and so the dealers don't want to know, uh, want each other to know what they have and, and what they're selling to whom, and uh, it does uh, tend to, uh, to add to the problem. All right. Well, this has been uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, we will welcome any more comments about maps that anybody wants to make, either on our Twitter feed at WNPR Colin, or you can email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. We want to thank everybody who helped out. Hiawatha Bray, his book is called You Are Here, From the Compass to the GPS. Uh, Michael Blanding's uh, book uh, is The Map Thief, uh, subtitled The Gripping Story of an Esteemed Rare Map Dealer Who Made Millions Stealing Priceless Maps. Uh, we've been so lucky to, ha- lucky to have in studio the expertise of Robert Donna, professional land surveyor and past president and current legislative liaison of the Connecticut Association of Land Surveyors. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right. And thanks to all of you for listening and tweeting and calling and making this an interesting show. Uh, We will be back with you tomorrow for a show about children's literature. Thursday, Philippe Petit will join us from a studio in New York. The guy who, you want to talk about an interesting journey, it was just from tower to tower, but there wasn't much of a net. We'll be back uh, with those shows and the news on Friday. Kion Wolf, and I'm not so sure about this hot and cold GPS I picked up. You're getting warmer. You're getting colder. Warmer. Colder. Warmer. You are so frozen. Ugh.